This episode is brought to you by Casper. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash best and using the promo code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply, but again, for $50 off select mattresses, visit casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall focus on the youth-led response to the Parkland shooting and learn that this is not nearly the first time that kids have been on the forefront of calls for major change. Our clips today come from Democracy Now!, The Bradcast, On the Media, Sunday Civics, and The Trumpcast. The time to act is now. That's the message of survivors of last week's school shooting in Florida. On Wednesday, the nation witnessed grieving students, parents, and teachers powerfully confront the president and lawmakers over gun control in pointed and often tense televised exchanges. The day began with students across the United States, from Minnesota to Colorado to Arizona, walking out of class to demand stricter gun laws. They carried signs reading, Make Us Safe and Bring On the Politicians, We Will Rise. Students at Coral Springs High School formed a giant human heart on their school football field, as did students at Cooper City High School to honor the 17 victims of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. Meanwhile, survivors of the shooting descended on the Florida State Capitol in Tallahassee to demand lawmakers pass legislation addressing gun violence before the legislative session ends in two weeks. This is student Cheryl Accaroli. Dear Congress, how can you claim to stand for the people but let your kids get slaughtered like animals in the President Trump, along with Vice President Mike Pence and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, hosted a listening session with survivors of recent shootings, including students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and parents. Speakers at the White House included high school senior Samuel Zeef, who survived last week's shooting. I don't understand. I turned 18 the day after. Woke up to the news that my best friend was gone. And I don't understand why I could still go in a store and buy a weapon of war, an AR. I was reading today that a person 20 years old walked into a store and bought an AR-15 in five minutes with an expired ID. How is it that easy to buy this type of weapon? How do we not stop this after Columbine, after Sandy Hook? 
sitting with a mother that lost her son. It's still happening. In Australia, there was a shooting at a school in 1999. And, you know, after that, they took a lot of ideas. They put legislation together. And they stopped it. Can anyone here guess how many shootings there have been in the schools since then in Australia? Zero. We need to do something. And that's why we're here. During the listening session, Trump suggested the solution to school shootings is arming teachers. It's called concealed carry, where a teacher would have a concealed gun on them. They'd go for special training and they would uh, be there and you would no longer have a gun free zone, gun free zone to a maniac because they're all cowards. A gun free zone is let's go in and let's attack because bullets aren't coming back at us. Among those who objected to Trump's plan is Mark Borden, who is a father who lost his seven-year-old son, Daniel, during the Sandy Hook shooting. He's the founder and director of Sandy Hook Promise. This is Borden speaking during Wednesday's listening session with Trump. This is my son, Daniel. He was seven years old when he was shot to death in his first grade classroom in Sandy Hook Elementary School just a little over five years ago. My wife, Jackie, could not be here today because she's a school teacher and she takes that job seriously and sent me as the ambassador. Jackie is a career educator and she will tell you she has spent over a decade in the Bronx. And she will tell you that school teachers have more than enough responsibilities right now than to have to have the awesome responsibility of lethal force to take a life. Thank you. Nobody wants to see a shootout in a school and a deranged sociopath on his way to commit an act of, of murder in a school with the outcome, knowing the outcome is going to be suicide, is not going to care if there's somebody there with a gun. That's their plan anyway. On Wednesday evening, survivors of the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School sparred with politicians during a town hall hosted by CNN. This is shooting survivor Cameron Caskey questioning Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio in one of the most powerful exchanges of the evening. This is about people who are for making a difference to save us and people who are against it and prefer money. So, Senator Rubio, can you tell me right now that you will not accept a single donation from the NRA in the future? The positions I hold on these issues of the Second Amendment, I've held since the day I entered office in the city of West Miami as an elected official. Number two, no, the answer to the question is that people buy into my agenda. And I do support the Second Amendment. And I also support the right of you and everyone here to be able to go to school and be safe. And I do support any law that would keep guns out of the hands of a deranged killer. And that's why I support the things that I have stood for and fought for during more, my time here. More NRA money? More NRA money? It, I, there, that, that is the wrong way to look. First of all, the answer is people buy into my agenda. You can say Number no. second, well, I... I the God, influence of any group. We're going to be here all night. The influence of these groups comes not from money. The influence comes from the millions of people that agree with the agenda. So the millions of Americans that support the NRA and who support right. gun rights. Sorry, Senator. Guys, 
Guys, guys, if you Cameron is having a conversation with Senator Rubio, let's let them talk. Listen, I respect you can ask that question, and I can tell you that I people buy into my agenda. I will answer any questions you guys have about any policy. Right now, right now, guys, be quiet, be quiet. You know, you know, and I I just think that ultimately that is not our goal here. Our goal here is to move forward. So hold on. So so right now, in the name in the name of 17 people, you cannot ask the NRA to keep their money out of your campaign. I think in the name of 17 people, I can pledge to you that I will support any law that will prevent a killer like this No, but I'm talking about money. No. You may have seen some of that so-called listening session that Donald Trump held at the White House on Wednesday with some of the students and parents of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, as well as the uh, uh, parents of some of the children who were killed at the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Newtown, Connecticut back in 2012, as well as others. Donald Trump mentioned that uh, as a uh, a possibility during the White House listening session, uh, he was thinking about the idea of arming teachers, telling the group, quote, I think it could very well solve your problem. But he went into more detail on that idea and what turned out to be an all out tweet storm rant early on Thursday morning in which he claimed Uh, Just as the National Rifle Association has been claiming for years that gun free schools are a, quote, magnet for bad people. And then he said in all caps, so, you know, it's extra true. Attacks would end if highly trained gun adept school staff had concealed weapons. He said that giving concealed weapons to teachers with training would allow them to, quote, immediately fire back if a savage sicko came to a school with bad intentions. Highly trained teachers would also serve as a deterrent to the cowards that do this. He uh, tweeted, if a potential sicko shooter knows that a school has a large number of very weapons talented teachers and others who will be instantly shooting, the sicko will never, in all caps, attack the school. Cowards won't go there. Problem solved, Trump tweeted, adding must be offensive. Defense alone won't work. The NRA's chief spokesman, Wayne LaPierre, speaking at the right wing CPAC convention in D.C. on Thursday echoed those thoughts. He said, quote, our jewelry stores, our banks, our airports, our NBA games, they're all more protected than our children at school. Do we really love our money and our celebrities more than our children? He said that schools must be our hardened, our most hardened targets in this country. Repeating the phrase that he uttered uh, after 20 kindergartners and six teachers were gunned down at Sandy Hook Elementary School five years ago, quote, to stop a bad guy with a gun, it takes a good guy with a gun. One of the Stoneman Douglas High School students who spoke on Wednesday at Trump's White House listening session was senior Sam Zeif, who broke down while explaining what happened to his best friend, who was killed during the shooting and his little brother who was in the room directly the classroom directly above his as they all hid for their lives as a former 19-year-old student unleashed a hail of semi-automatic weapon fire from a rifle he legally purchased under Florida law which ended up taking the lives of 14 students and 3 teachers last week while wounding 
about a dozen others. Zeif's comments at that session at the White House, frankly, were heartbreaking. But like so many of the other kids that we have seen over the past week emerging from the shooting to vow never again as they march, as they protest, as they advocate and frankly insist on long overdue gun safety legislation, Zeif was serious, articulate, determined and just incredibly well-spoken in all regards. He appeared again this morning on CNN with uh, Allison Camerata and was asked about the president's call for arming school teachers across the country in response. He described the idea as absolute madness. Sam, what did you think about the president's idea of arming teachers? Madness. Like, just absolute madness. Teachers go through emotions every single day just like students do, just like mentally ill people do, just like everyone. And teachers are faced with the responsibility every single day of molding young lives and mentoring them and being there for them. Why should they be faced with the responsibility of knowing whether or not they're going to have to kill them that day? So, Sam, today, now that you've been there at the White House, now that we've had this conversation in such an intense way for this past week. What do you want to say to the president? Where do you want to start today? Honestly, I hope we can do this. I said this today. I said this last night. I said it yesterday at the White House. He can make America great again. And this is how he does it. But if he doesn't want to cooperate, we're going to make America great again. That was Sam Zeif on CNN. I love that. And I love all of these kids from Stoneman Douglas who are incredibly impressive in every way. You, you've heard them over the past week. But here's a reminder of just some of their uh, comments from some of the others in recent days. Never again should students have to protest for their lives. Never again should an innocent life be taken while trying to gain an education. We are coming after you. We are coming after every single one of you and demanding that you take action, demanding that you make a change. What we must do now is enact change because that is what we do to things that fail. We change them. I'm not here for a fight. I'm not here to argue with you. I just want to speak. I just want to see your face and know why. People are talking about how we aren't serious because we're children, but have you heard my friends talk? We're serious. I will fight every single day, and I know everyone else here will fight for the rest of their lives to see sensible gun laws in this country and so that kids don't have to fear going back to school. Yes, they are serious indeed. Uh, NPR reporter Susan Davis tweeted a, a thought on these 17-year-olds uh, in general. Uh, she said, it strikes me how unique their generation is, born and raised in the 9-11 era, into a nation at war their entire lives and already witnessed 19 of the 33 deadliest shootings in America since World War II. That, she says, must shape and be shaping worldviews in ways that we don't fully grasp yet.
On Thursday, National Rifle Association boss Wayne LaPierre looked back at the past week and a half of activism following yet another devastating school shooting and defaulted to accusation mode. As usual, the opportunist wasted not one second to exploit tragedy for political gain. Saul Linsky would have been proud. The breakback speed of calls for more gun control laws and the breathless national media eager to smear the NRA. Meanwhile, outside the Florida Capitol building in Tallahassee, and even in the offices of some state legislators, the survivors of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School carried on what they describe as a nonpartisan, long-due movement called Hashtag Never Again. The students, some of whom traveled to Tallahassee just hours after burying their friends, had an audacious idea to make the Parkland school shooting the last school shooting. According to Emily Witt, writer and reporter for The New Yorker, the conviction to achieve that took hold within hours of the massacre. The initial conversations were on social media. Students in group chats shared their feelings. And then the night after the shooting, some students gathered together at the house of one of their friends, started a Facebook page that they called Never Again. And the media was everywhere. They were talking to tons of students, and they all decided to gather together under the name of this movement, Never Again. They've chosen their battles. They've avoided an assault on the Second Amendment or even just on Republicans in general, who are the most vocal guardians of the Second Amendment. How quickly did their tactics, their strategy and their agenda coalesce? I would say really within 48 hours, they had decided that they wanted to send a nonpartisan message. Some of them were advocating for a ban for the AR-15, but certainly not all of them. And the first step that they would like to make is simply more stringent background checks and what they call common sense gun law reform. Their sense of urgency really comes from wanting to stop this and not from taking a side. A lot of them are not even old enough to vote. And at the meetings in Tallahassee, there were kids that identified as Republicans, kids that identified as Democrats, and kids that said they had no party affiliation. They were just there because they want to stop gun violence. You know, I don't want to necessarily identify him as the leader of this student movement in Parkland, but Patient Zero sort of is a kid named Cameron Caskey. Was he the first to seek fellow travelers for an organized movement? He has a lot of energy (laughs) when he was little, or he probably got everybody organized on the playground. And he'd written a post on Facebook that had gotten the attention of the media. So he had started giving interviews with the national news media pretty quickly. So he was already out there. And his living room, I think, is where they've been having their planning session so far. And he is the author of the slogan, hashtag never again. That's right. He said he came up with it while sitting on the toilet in his Ghostbuster pajamas, and he made it very clear (laughs) that we could all quote him on that. (laughs) That's pretty charming, but does that little anecdote uh, undercut their seriousness or actually support the notion that it's the real organic deal? 
they're really upfront that they're still just kids and that that's part of the reason this shouldn't have happened to them. They shouldn't have had to cower in closets while their friends were getting shot. They're kids. They're really open about that. Cameron Kasky, in his Ghostbuster pajamas, was also the one who changed the tune originally from a broadside against Republicans and their support for the NRA and against gun control to opening the discussion beyond standard political boundaries. How does a 17-year-old have the wherewithal to be so politically thoughtful? These students are from one of the best public high schools in Florida. And in the midst of this tragedy, I think it's important to remember what a great American public high school can look like, how multicultural it is, how politically aware the students are. These are students that have grown up thinking about this issue. One other student leader, Jacqueline Corrin, who's the junior class president, she wrote a 50-page paper on gun control for her AP composition and rhetoric class just a couple months ago. This is not an exceptional event out in the world to them. This is something they've grown up hearing about and thinking about and knowing that it could possibly happen to them. You know, when I watch adult reporters at press conferences with the president and his spokespeople, I'm sometimes disgusted when respect crosses the line into deference, into undue deference based on the circumstances. This did not seem to be the case with these kids facing Marco Rubio and other politicians. They said what they meant, and they meant what they said. So hold on. So right now, in the, name, in, the name, in the name of 17 people, you cannot ask the NRA to keep their money out of your campaign? I think in the name of 17 people, I can pledge to you that I will support any law that will prevent a killer like this No, but I'm talking getting NRA money. No. No, because... Uh, uh, matter of fact, guys, I bet we can get people in here to give you exactly as much money as the NRA would have. But it's not... And you're right. A group of 100 students came to Tallahassee to speak with state legislators. And I sat in on some of those meetings, and the students were very respectful. They chose their battles. They weren't going to sit there and wave their cell phones and record video and yell at anybody. They had very measured and thoughtful conversations with the very few lawmakers in Florida who were willing to meet with them. All this in the midst of burying friends, trying to take care of their own mental health, preparing for the resumption of the school year. Being a junior in high school is not a cakewalk under the best of circumstances. There is a lot of pressure. How in the world do you suppose they are coping with this extraordinary ordeal? Well, the students I spoke with said especially the more activist students, said this is their way of grieving. They, a lot of these kids are extroverts. A few of them are in drama club, politics club, student government. They're the kind of kids that like to be out there and doing things. And for them, the grieving process has been about speaking their mind and trying to change something. They, they need to act because they feel a sense of urgency that sitting at home and crying would not make better. What these students believe that I think the rest of us have become too complacent or too cynical to believe is that this really could be the last mass shooting in a school in America. 
And their idealism is reminding a lot of us what we've lost in settling for the reality that we have. And that's been moving people all over the country. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper, the sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. I've been a happy owner of the original Casper mattress for years, but uh, now they've begun offering two other mattresses tailored even more to your physical and financial needs. The Wave mattress features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body, while the Essential mattress has a streamlined design with a price that won't keep you up at night. And Casper makes the whole process painless by shipping your mattress directly to you in an impossibly small box and offering their 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial and hassle-free returns in the unlikely event that you're not completely satisfied. And of course, Casper mattresses are already affordable thanks to cutting out the showrooms and middlemen, but you can get an additional $50 off toward select mattress purchases by visiting casper.com slash best and using the code best at checkout. Terms and conditions do apply. Again, that's casper.com slash best and use the promo code best at checkout. The Children's Crusade in 1963 was the use of school-aged children primarily to participate in nonviolent demonstrations in downtown Birmingham. We were told in some of the mass meetings that a day would come when we could really do something about all of these inequities that we were experiencing. And we were calling it D-Day. That was May 2nd, 1963. On a Monday morning, a young lady came out to visit our school to recruit people to come downtown. And she said, I'm hoping you can motivate our kids to come and go to jail. Some people, their parents might have known what they were doing. There's a lot of folks who, you know, their people had no idea. My mother knew about it, and she told me not to march, don't leave the school ground, but I did anyway. Droves of us left school and walked to 16th Street. We saw the kids coming into the 16th Street Baptist Church and we were elated, they made it, they made it. We sang some freedom songs, we said some prayers. They reminded us this was a nonviolent movement and with those instructions, we were lined up in pairs, walked down those steps singing, We Shall Overcome. Lo and behold, coming off of the steps at the 16th Street Baptist Church, there were 25 to 40, 50 sheriffs across the road with these little batons in their hands at the ready. First, we were faced with the dogs and the water hose. Kids are sprayed with fire hoses. They kick out 100 pounds of pressure. They tore clothes. They tore flesh. The police officers stopped us. And uh, speaking through a megaphone, said, get out of this line or you're going to jail. We were put in a cell block, I understand, hold 650 people. 
and this cell block had over 1,500 people in it. There were so many people there, we were just standing around shoulder to shoulder. I think we were the pivotal point that caused some changes uh, to take place in society. I think the nation was so outraged by how children were being treated in a nonviolent movement until it touched the hearts of people who otherwise might not have noticed what was going on. It's not about having gone to jail, how long I stayed, and what we went through that day going to jail. It's about our kids. And our kids need to know the story. Welcome back to Sunday Civics here on Sirius XM Urban View, Channel 126. What you were just listening to is a oral uh, history. I think this was on Biography Channel. We You can go to our website, sundaycivics.org, and check the show notes for this episode and watch the entirety uh, of that conversation And that was a story about the Children's March. This is in 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama. You may have heard mention of the 16th Baptist Church, which the now uh, infamous 16th Baptist, uh, 16th Street Baptist Church, where young people, and I'm not just talking about college students, I'm talking about nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds who had walked out of their school and decided to take civic action um, in <laughs> Alabama, mm-hmm. girl, <laughs> um, to protest segregation mm. um, in their community. And you heard some of them talk about, like their parents. Some of their parents told them not to go. Some That's of their right. parents did, you know, did say, um, you know, that they were for them. They were arrested. Um, if you watch the entirety of it, they talk about how, you know, now you think of it's a badge of honor to be arrested for yeah. social justice or civil rights issue. It wasn't, right. you know, back then um, you were called a jailbird or, you know, things like that. And people didn't want their uh, kids to be involved in that. But these were young people who decided to walk out of their classrooms to protest injustice. Right. And I thought of that um, thinking about this current conversation where young people are organizing and demanding action from their legislative uh, leaders regarding gun violence. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, partly because people are like, oh, this is going to be, you know, never before have young people led these movements. And I was like, (laughs) who knew young people were active? I was like, why do we forget things Mm. so much? (laughs) And particularly in our community, when literally every step of freedom that we have achieved as African descendant people, be it here, be it on the continent of Africa, when neocolonialism, when we were fighting colonial powers and young people have always played an instrumental role in securing justice for that generation. And not only that, I mean, people who organize and active now, we think of people as being, you know, veterans and organizers and social justice movements now mm. in our 30s or whatever. Remember, those folks that were doing organizing even in the 60s That's right. were in their early 20s, Very mid-20s. Young. They were younger. That's right. Right. And so here are some just just for people to, to put this in context, not only, you know, the Children's March in 1963, but how we get the 26th Amendment, which right. actually lowers the voting uh, age from 21 to 18. That's right. Was young people who were being sent away to war and it do- wasn't just 
Vietnam, mm-hmm. even though that was the, it started a World War Two. Right. When they actually re- um, lowered the voting age to be able to send men to war. That's right. Right. And so then young people then were advocating. And that's how we get the 26th Amendment. OK, let's go back to the continent, as you mentioned. Um, and also in coordination before social That's media, right. before Twitter, before you had these before Twitter streets. social media, we're talking about apartheid in South Africa. That's right. So before you had Twitter, before you had Facebook, before you had any of that, you had students putting their bodies and their lives on the line in South Africa. Right. And there was also this movement here in the United States with college students and high right. school students, you know, walking out and protesting and doing the um, divestment movement without social media That's right. to organize. Let alone internet <laughs> let alone internet right like we remember when internet became a thing and it's like you know when we're talking about black studies in in colleges we don't have that without students fighting for it when it comes to recognizing a lot of the key issues and really because students have the benefit have two benefits that the older folks don't have one you have the benefit of all the blessings and the foundation that was given to you by the previous generation but two you are young enough to have an, an imagination that can conceptualize things in ways that older folk we've been and I'm going to include we in this yeah, because, you, you get jaded right like, you can't do right. that <laughs> but if you've never if you've never been if you've never been told no and if your imagination is open and pure even if you've been told no but you have the benefit of having seen what worked and what didn't in the past and you can conceptualize things differently there is a power there that we have to value and nurture young people because they really are some of the strongest folks we've got in the movement yeah not only that this conversation about um you know, older people are taking advantage of the young people in this mm. moment. And again, I think back to the Children's March, right? right. It was James, it was uh, Bevel, right? Who identified that we can use young people that one, they care about this issue. Right. And when we talk to them about it and, you know, in the uh, piece that I played, if you watch the whole thing, again, you can go to sundaycivics.org to watch uh, the link to watch the whole thing. Um, one of the participants talks about Bevel coming to her class and he asked her about, do you have a typewriter mm. in your class, you know, in your school? She was like, yes, we have one. And I'm one of the only ones who can use it because I type really fast. And he goes, well, did you know at the white school they mm-hmm. have ro- three rooms of typewriters right. so that every student can go through? And she was like, what the entire hell? <laughs> <laughs> who said what? To where now? Who the, who the what? Right. Right. And so and, and then so that they knew that there were injustices. Right. They knew the things or whatever. And then here comes an adult just to put it in context with them right and then provided the training the resources and support for them to actually do the activism so it's not just about manipulating young people it's giving them the tools and the resources for them to take that imagination and then use it on their own So tell me this, Mary Beth, take me back to 1965 and you and, and your family and friends are talking about this silent, peaceful protest. Did, did you know that the school was going to discipline you or did you think they were going to let you slide? Well, they weren't planning to until a few days before our planned, um, you know, we're wearing our plan to wear the armbands was going to be on December 16th. So a couple days earlier, it came out in this morning register that the principals had met and made a rule against armbands, black armbands. So there were about 50 kids signed up to wear the armbands, and that dropped down to a handful. I think seven or eight kids eventually did wear the black armbands, and five 
got suspended. So I did know that there was a chance of getting suspended. I was only in eighth grade. I was so shy. Um, but I learned later about something called civil disobedience. And this is probably the most difficult thing to explain to students when I tell them about the Tinker story, because there was a rule and yes, we broke it. Well, as I tell students, if there's a rule or a law that you feel very, very strongly about, you're very morally, you know, um, think you're thinking about this a lot in your conscience, number one. Number two, you can take action about that, but it's got to be peaceful. And number three, you have to be willing to take the consequences. So kids who are planning walkouts and things like that, I mean, they do need to be willing and ready to take the consequence because... Under the interpretation of the uh, by the Supreme Court right now, they they will be open for being suspended. However, I was reading about a principal this morning, I think in Texas at Needle Needle something Texas, who the principal was saying that no protests will be allowed in school. Now that is not right because under the Tinker ruling, kids do have the right to protest in school as long as it is peaceful. And as long as it does not substantially disrupt school or impinge on the rights of others. Mary Beth, one of the reasons you've been on my mind is I remember you telling me the story. I have since repeated it to my 12-year-old, oh, a thousand times, about how freaked out and scared you were when you were actually yes. called into the carpet. Can Can you just share that? Because I think... For me, it stands for the idea that you only have to be like a little bit brave. You don't have to be the bravest kid in school. Can, can you tell me what you were feeling in the moment when you got disciplined? I was so nervous and, and scared, Dahlia. And I, my heart was racing as I walked down to the office where I was sent by my math teacher, Mr. Moberly. And then when they told me, the vice principal and uh, the girl's advisor, Mrs. Tarman, told me to take off the black armband, I did that. And there is a lesson there that history is made largely by ordinary people who may have a little bit of courage. And I tell the kids, you don't have to be, you know, Rosa Parks or or uh, some great hero. You can just be you. You can be a uh, scared, you know, 12-year-old, 13 or teenager, whatever it is. Use the little bit of courage you have, and you might be amazed at what a difference you can, you can still make. But my father, he didn't really want us to wear the the black armbands, but we knew something about my dad that he had a soft spot for the conscience because he had lived through World War II and some of his buddies had been killed there. And so when he, he told us, you know, I don't think you should necessarily wear those black armbands, we said, but dad, it's our conscience. And that's what kids now are doing and the adults who support them are also thinking about what's in your conscience? When do you have to take a stand? And you do in democracy, and in our world today, have to take a stand at times. And that was one of those times for young people. I'm so happy that they are doing that. You visited Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, right, a couple years ago? Yes, yes. I went a few years ago as part of my Tinker Tour. I'm a pedi- I am was a pediatric trauma nurse, which is another reason I'm so happy these kids are doing this, because I've, there's a, uh, you know, there are thousands of people around the country that patch up kids emotionally, physically, in every other way, who are shot and who are affected by gun violence. And I was one of those people. But I left the hospital in 2013 and started traveling the country speaking to kids about 
the First Amendment and their rights, because I decided that's good for their health also, when they can advocate for their own interests. And as part of the tour, I did stop at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and I had a really good day talking with the students about the things they were speaking up about, such as their music program being cut back, an art program, and the photography program, and just different things that kids were speaking up about and standing up about, budget cuts in their schools, which was, was such a common problem as I travel around the country. And it still is today. I was just reading about the uh, higher education funds being cut in Missouri, where my family lives. And uh, I was with some uh, people at Western Missouri State a couple of days ago, and they had written letters to the legislature, and they're speaking up as well about these issues. But yes, I was I was there, and I was invited by the um, journalism teacher, Melissa Falkowski, who has been in the news a lot lately, and, and they their journalism program has been so amazing this week, the way that they've stepped up, and they've been reporting on what's going on. And in the journalism classroom itself, I think 150 people or so of students were held there safely until, um, you know, things could be cleared at the school. But I'm so proud of these young journalists, and I'm so happy about kids who who are standing up for the free press and who are practicing it in their lives. You mentioned, Mary Beth, that, that, that this is not new. This is of a piece with what minority kids have done around Black Lives Matter for, for, for some time. Can, can you amplify that thought? Because I think uh, for a lot of folks, this yeah. all started a week ago. This didn't start a week ago, right? No, this did not start a week ago. As I said, I, I've been a trauma nurse, <laughs> excuse me, and I started as an EMT, emergency medical technician, and I've, I've been very upset about the violence towards children, gun violence, especially towards children and young people. I'm a member of a group called Moms Demand Action, have been some, for some time. So our meeting about a month ago before the shooting in Florida, to begin the meeting, we read the names of the people who had been killed by gun violence in Washington, D.C. since January 1st. So I admire young people who are speaking up now and also so many young people who have been speaking up for quite some time. But now I think it's really a a turning point. And it's like when the uh, 1963 Birmingham Children's Crusade happened and thousands of kids marched and protested in Birmingham against segregation. Martin Luther King said that it was a turning point when those kids did that and that he had never seen anything like it. And this period that we're in right now with these kids standing up and speaking up about gun violence and the epidemic of gun violence, it reminds me so much of that. Last question for you, Mary Beth. Did you think even two, three years ago, I I remember you saying to me, uh, you know, if kids don't exercise this First Amendment muscle, they're going to lose it. Did you think? Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead. I don't, well, yeah, I like to tell kids that as I travel around and I speak to middle school, high school, uh, I was with some kids in Kansas. The, the, the uh, Department of Education of Kansas just had a wonderful problem, I mean, a program, I'm sorry, a few days ago to promote civic engagement in the Kansas schools. And so many kids there were speaking about so many things, whether it was, you know, racist incidents that had happened in their school or their newspaper programs or organic gardening or helping vets or helping animals, animal rights, just so many things. And I like to tell the kids that, the First Amendment is like, it's like your muscles, your five rights of the First Amendment, the right to free speech, to the free press, to freedom of religion, and to assemble, and the right to petition. 
those rights are like your muscles. And if we don't use them, we can lose them. So that's another reason I'm so happy to see these kids standing up because we're in mighty times right now when our Constitution needs to be affirmed and our First Amendment needs to be affirmed. And I think these kids are doing a wonderful job of um, strengthening democracy. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stand with the students to demand real gun regulation. The student survivors from Parkland, Florida are showing us who we need to be. They are angry, grieving, and traumatized, and have immediately channeled those emotions into a national call to action that has had more impact in two weeks than most movements see in years. They've held the mainstream media's fleeting attention on gun control for weeks. Dozens of companies that once offered discounts to NRA members have ended those programs. After the rally Parkland students organized in Tallahassee, the GOP-controlled Florida legislature is actually considering gun control measures that would never have been entertained before. They have even pushed Trump to order a crackdown on bump stocks and propose more thorough background checks. And Betsy DeVos is calling for congressional hearings. And of course, these teenagers have already become the targets of extreme right-wing groups and media outlets, including the NRA, but they are laser-focused and have had no problem calling out every hypocrite and shutting down every troll touting NRA talking points. This is just the beginning, of course, but it's powerful and hopeful. Parkland students' success may be partly a combination of their whiteness and affluence, and the final straw of Americans exhausted by years of nearly constant mass shootings, but these kids are also naturally savvy activists fighting for their lives. They've barely finished burying their friends, but they are organizing school walkouts and a major rally in D.C., establishing a strong social media presence, giving moving speeches, writing op-eds for major publications, and speaking concisely and plainly to the media to make their points. They've said over and over that they do not want the deaths of their 17 classmates to mean nothing. So today's activism comes directly from the Parkland student activists who have outlined ways people can support them and the Parkland community in the wake of this tragedy. Mark your calendars to stand with young people at the March for Our Lives in D.C. or the sister rallies around the country on Saturday, March 24th. Go to marchforourlives.com for details and to donate to support the national organizing efforts. The movement's hashtag may be never again, but the student organizers have also explicitly said that this is not just a social media campaign. They want to move everyone, especially young people, to vote for our lives in the 2018 midterm elections, and that requires making sure students who are turning 18 this year are registered to vote. They ask that you write and call your members of Congress about gun control, make sure you are registered to vote, help get others registered to vote, and of course, actually go vote in the midterm elections elections to stop NRA-backed politicians. Additionally, many companies and banks have been called out in the press as having ties to the NRA or the world of guns and ammunition producers, and the students are calling for divestment and boycotts. We've included some of those articles in the show notes. You can help push the movement further by putting pressure on these institutions and withholding your business until they make changes. The students have also asked that you consider supporting the Victims Fund, the fund for their upcoming benefit concert, and the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School Journalism Program. The links to these individual GoFundMe pages are also in the show notes. 
The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if striking while the iron is hot to demand the gun regulation we so obviously need is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about standing with the students to demand real gun control via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. teacher in Philadelphia observed what might be another sign of this generation of kids having a worldview that uh, uh, us old folks, uh, I guess, have not yet begun to fully appreciate. English teacher Dina Lagerman uh, wrote about an interesting experiment that she carried out, that she's been carrying out for several years when she uh, teaches the classic George Orwell novel 1984 to her students. The book, of course, is the futuristic dystopian novel published in 1949 by Orwell, set in the super state of Oceania, whose residents are victims of perpetual war, omnipresent government surveillance, propaganda, and public manipulation via the thought police who persecute individualism and independent thinking regarded as thought crimes in a tyrannical system of government overseen by the mysterious leader known as Big Brother, leading a party which seeks power entirely for its own sake rather than the good of others. Lagerman has carried out a very interesting social experiment while teaching that book for a number of years, but this year her students had a very different response, a very different reaction to that experiment for some reason. Joining us now to discuss what happened, as uh, as she described in a post at Medium.com this week titled, The Teens Will Save Us, God, I hope she's right, is Dina Lagerman. Dina, welcome to the broadcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Sure. I know you're a writer, English teacher for high school juniors and seniors uh, in Philadelphia, and you post articles at at Medium and, and write for the parenting website Romper. You've also been published by Women's Health Magazine, The Week, HuffPost, and others, including Pop Sugar, which I mention just because I like saying Pop Sugar. Uh, <laughs> so every year while teaching the, the, the George Orwell Big Brother classic novel 1984, uh, warning of the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful government uh, in this book, which has manipulated its people to control them in all sorts of ways, uh, many of which ring a bit too familiar, I, I, I'm afraid, in 2018, if you ask me. Uh -huh. But you conduct a social experiment of sorts with your students, who, who I guess don't really know they're part of this experiment until it's over, uh, in, in a way to help teach the book. Tell me what you do with this experiment, and then we'll discuss both how it usually goes and then how it turned out this year for the first time. Sure. Um, so, you know, I could, 1984 is a very important book, as you mentioned, right now, and always, but especially right now. And I love teaching it. It's one of my favorite texts. But to be honest, it's a little slow, especially for kids today who are immersed in social media and a very quick, you know, uh, clickbait headline. Mm -hmm. So how do I get their attention? How do I make them learn without lecturing them and making them read without having any background knowledge. Our students are luckily 
privileged enough to where their rights aren't being taken away yet. Um, so how do I make them experience what the people in the novel live through every day? How do I make them understand? So my uh, activity is that I do before the book is I tell them that, hey, you know what, guys? You're seniors. You're going to have senioritis. It's getting nicer outside soon. You're almost graduating. And I really don't want you to fail. And I think, you know, we all agree that I want you to do well for the rest of the year. So I've collected some research, and this has been done for numerous years, and it's worked in every other school, and this is the way we battle senioritis. And they kind of look at each other and go, okay, well, what do you have for us? Mm-hmm. And I tell them, you know, I make up, I make up statistics. I, I tell them, you know, that X amount of students fail out every year. And they, they just eat it up. <laughs> you know, I, I am their teacher, so they're listening to me and they're interested. And then, I, and then I say, well, these are the rules. You know, you have to raise your hand every time you need to use the bathroom, every time you need to ask a question, every time you even need to ask your peer for something. You know, we have to have very strict rules, very strict guidelines, because if you don't follow them, then senioritis will get you. Um, and they're not happy with it, but I basically convince them that it's for the common good. Yeah. I tell them they lose points every time they don't follow, and then they gain points if they help me kind of keep track of other students who are breaking the rules. Wow. And so and you, you, you write that you put up uh, posters. You basically turn the classroom yeah. into a totalitarian regime. And, and do the, ki- do, do, do the kids uh, play along do they do they tell on others uh, as you have instructed them in your with your posters and your your signs your motivational quotes that are posted everywhere and so forth so not this year <laughs> yeah not this year i waited for two days and i had so i post a folder in my classroom that says truth folder and you had, you had uh, a, i'm sorry you, you had a, a truth folder you said Yes, a truth folder. Mm-hmm. This is the folder where they would write notes in if they saw any wrongdoing. Okay. So, um, because uh, I wanted them to tell the truth, uh-huh. right? Because that was that mattered for for senioritis, so mm-hmm. curing it. And in so the past, they and in the past, before we talk about what happened this year, in the past, they they've gone a, 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 along with this experiment for several days while you're teaching the book, and and so, yeah. So I, I taught it um, a couple years ago, uh, four times in a row, and then I took a little break from teaching, and this is the first year I'm teaching it again. Mm-hmm. And in the past, when I had taught it, I actually did it a little bit more intense even to where, like, I made them, well, I asked them to kind of give up their privacy voluntarily. And, you know, I asked them to, to write their parents' salary on a piece of paper and tell me everything they do every single minute of the day. and. And they, they looked up at me, and obviously I didn't read this information at all went in the trash, but they, they looked up at me for a second and questioned me. I'm like, you can't question me. I'm kind of sick of this chaos that's been going on, and I need my classroom back. You have taken advantage. So I, I have a more of like a dictatorship part in the process. Right. Um, but at that point in the past, they would just raise their hand and say, well, so-and-so is doing so-and-so, and then I would give them a point. And then when they saw the process, quote, working to their advantage, mm. then right. they would start telling on each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and at first, they thought it was a joke. In the, at first day, they thought, oh, ha, 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 so funny. 
But then by the second day, when they see that the points are still there and some of them are losing points, they're starting to get more serious. And they really do fall in line and the classroom is completely silent. And you could see um, they're feeling very threatened, but they also don't know what to do because I'm clearly in power at this point. And then, you know, when they kind of learned what they need to learn, mm-hmm. I stopped the experiment and then we discussed it and we debrief and they're obviously always very relieved that it's not, <laughs> <laughs> that it's not real. Right. Um, and obviously none of them, and they're always like, well, did I lose any points? I'm like, no, no, you didn't lose any points. Like, you're good. But what did we learn about ourselves? Wow. You know, what did we learn about when the teacher takes away your power? I am the authority here. What happened? And that had been pretty that was pr- predictable. Uh, predictably, in the past, it would go down like that. Not this year, however. What happened? I, I, I know there was a break between the time you uh, last ran this experiment <laughs> and now, but yeah. but what happened this year when you tried this uh, the same experiment? Well, yeah, I, mean, I know that there has been a break, but I've just been watching teenagers change, mm-hmm. and so I wondered what would happen this year. So I, you know, I did the same thing this year. I added the whole senioritis about how you know we really need to battle it. And I also got other teachers involved, and the other teachers loved it because they they were able to see how the students react, and they kind of reported to me and saying, "Well, so and so is doing this," so it was very controlled. Make sure the kids are fine and mm-hmm. they're not you know being distressed over it or anything like that. So this year, it was something else. This year, they did not go down without a fight. I mean, they actually didn't go down at all. They, after the first day I introduced the experiment, they threw like 50 questions at me. Well, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And, you know, what if I tell them this person and that person gets upset? And will that person lose points? And what if that person gets suspended? Like they had a lot of concerns, which my other students didn't have before. They said, well, this seems like we're living in kindergarten, like all of these rules. You know, this seems like you're taking advantage of us, you know. And I was like, no, this is for your common good. And I have a really good rapport with my students, so they Mm -hmm. do trust me. Um, So this was day one. And by the end of day one, so I have them in the beginning of day. So by end of day one, I'm hearing other teachers come to me and say, hey, they kind of like are getting it. They're getting upset. You know, they're, they're, they're getting upset. And that same night, I get an email, well, I don't get an email, but I get an email forwarded to me um, that the, the president of the student government sent to the administration, you know, expressing his displeasure with this, uh, with this activity. And he basically says, I feel like this is fascism and it's totalitarian and we will not stand for this. And I don't even have this student. <laughs> but, He's not one of my seniors. But the students were rebelling. Happening. The students were standing up and pushing back against this, banding together, it seems, and, and pushing back against your tyranny, uh, Dina. It, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And you write, uh, that for, quote, for the first time since I've done this experiment, the students won. Uh, why? What happened? What, what has changed as you see it? Uh, you know, since you ran this experiment in, in previous years, do you have any idea why it was this time they, they stood up, pushed back, rebelled and, and won? I have some ideas, and listen, I'm not a researcher, I'm not mm-hmm. a scientist, I, you know, I don't do social research, I don't know, but this is just my observation of teenagers in general. Mm-hmm. The word that they're using now is woke, right? <laughs> they're all woke now, mm-hmm. they're participating in, in marches, they're participating in, you know, their student government, they're listening to the news, they're reading the news more, every day we play CNN 10 for them so they know what's going on in the world every morning. 
they are involved. And I think in our current political climate where everything is so hostile and divisive, mm. they are learning. You know, these kids, I walk around and I, even in the cafeteria, I'll listen to them talk about DACA. And they'll talk about, you know, issues that I don't remember ever discussing when I was a kid as a teenager. Even the kids that I had previously didn't really discuss topics like that. They weren't on the horizon, I guess. They weren't interested. They weren't affected by it. Mm. You know, my students, these teenagers, I, I go to the Women's March, and I see all of these kids, a sea of teenagers, coming with posters and signs, and they truly are paying attention. And I ask my students, you know, why did you rebel? Because at the end, they won. Like I said, they rebelled. They said, we will not stand for it. They went to the administration. They said, this is not okay. Our rights are not going to be taken away. Uh-huh. And I said, why did you do it? I could have failed you, right? The premise was, if you lose enough points, you fail for the year. Right. I could have failed you. I am the authority. How do you go against me? Why did you do it? And the response I got was, you were taking away my rights, and you were taking away my freedoms, and it did not make sense. And mm. that's kind of what... And I, and I always teach them, if something doesn't make sense to you, that's when you need to stand up and ask why. You don't just take it sitting down. And a lot of my kids, that's what they said. And when I asked some of them why they fell in line, they said it was easier because I didn't want to get in trouble. I would never tell on anyone to gain more points, but I would just, I just didn't want to get in trouble, you know? Yeah. And there's different versions, but overall, the majority of them rose to the occasion. When I <laughs> asked, this, when I turned the student government president, student government president to my side, kind of, and I told him what I was trying to do, and he decided to help me, and he resigned, quote-unquote, in front of the students, and the students audibly gasped when he resigned in front of them. And after they left my class, they found a new leader. Multiple people were like, all right, I'm taking over, I'm going to help us, and and they were writing, they were making posters, you know, down with senioritis. Wow. So, it was incredible. I was... My heart swelled. I was so proud of him, just like when I watch the kids now at Parkland and, and their speeches and how articulate they are and how beautiful their speeches are and heart-wrenching, and they all just make me cry. But I actually cried when my kids said, we will not have our rights taken away from us. And as a teenager, I don't remember thinking that way. So it's, it's definitely, it's, to it's... me, it's a trend. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, highlighting some of the responses to Trump and Rubio after the shooting. The broadcast added a few more clips and quotes about the shooting. On the media, dove into the origin of the Never Again movement. Sunday Civics gave us a look back at past youth movements and discussed how we can foster and support these. The Trump cast spoke with Mary Beth Tinker about her role as a former youth protester and her thoughts on the current state of youth protest. Our activism for today is in support of the students' campaign for gun regulation. And finally, we just heard the broadcast speaking with a high school teacher about the appropriately rebellious response she got from her students this year. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is another Jeff, Jeff T. from New York, a very long-time listener and supporter. Best of the left prides itself on nuance, but nuance was unfortunately missing 
in the Israel and Palestine episodes. Listening, one gets the impression that the only solution to the occupation among Palestinians and the Israeli peace camp being debated is the one-state solution. I speak as someone who's been to Israel three times and whose wife has relatives there. I demonstrated in Tel Aviv against the occupation and settlements prior to the assassination of Rabin. My wife's relatives are for a two-state solution. They do not want to become a demographic minority relative to another national group, the Palestinians, with whom they've had decades of hostilities. We've seen in history cases where separate states are the best solution, the division of the former Czechoslovakia, the division of the former Yugoslavia, following the horrendous violence after the death of Marshal Tito. What you have in Israel and Palestine is two nationalist movements. The majority of Israelis and Palestinians want their own state. The most simplistic commentator in the two shows is, is Amir Zar. He said, they drop bombs, we drop babies. Yes, we can be critical of Israel's conduct in Gaza, but Hamas also sends missiles into Israeli population centers. They're not as effective due to the quality of their weapons, not their intentions. Zar also says, we are proudly a demographic threat, confirming Israelis' worst fears. Then he comments on the Israeli population. He refers to the early founding of the state as a European white supremacist sort of thing. Actually, many were eventually Holocaust survivors who had nowhere else to go. The Holocaust confirmed the fears that motivated the founding of the state, Jews growing desperation in Europe. He states that Israel brought in Arab Jews who don't fit in the Zionist ideal. As so-called evidence, he cites their Arabic language and music. Well, many of these Arab Jews were thrown out of their countries when Israel was founded, and many are right-wingers. He states that some Russians are not Jewish. The majority are Jews, also unfortunately right-wingers. Most ridiculously, he states that Ethiopians speak their native language, so they also don't fit in. So what? You know, many immigrants speak their native language. I hear, I hear native languages all the time in New York. In the first episode, you had a segment with Elon Pape. He's among Israel's new historians who takes a more critical look at the country's history. We can refer to them as the Howard Zins of Israel. Among them are Benny Morris and Tom Segev. Pape is the most extreme among them and that he sees no justification in Israel's existence, but this is the one who was featured in the Israel episode. In sum, I love the show and its dedication to nuance, but nuance was sorely missing in these two episodes. That includes a discussion of the two-state solution, which many still see as the most realistic alternative among all the difficult alternatives. Thank you. Hi, Jay and Amanda. This is Steve from Tampa, Florida. On the bonus episode, Amanda recently said you wanted to hear from someone who had had contact with conservative gun, owner, gun owners. And I'm not someone who frequently hangs out with conservative gun owners, but recently, before the Parkland shooting occurred, uh, my girlfriend and I went to dinner with a conservative couple from Texas, who over the course of conversation that night, I learned were owners of AR-15s. 
uh, meaning each of them had one in a his and her situation. And I think it's safe to say that their kids own guns too. Um, during the course of the evening, rather than challenge them on gun control, I just asked them about their positions. In our conversation, they said a few things that I thought I'd share with you. First, they said that they, you know, as I said, they're owners of AR-15s. And they said that they carried their assault rifles with them primarily when they went to enjoy recreational activities like fishing and riding ATVs near the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, one time, they said border agents had approached them on a patrol and asked if they were armed and encouraged them to bring all the firepower they had in the face of dangers lurking nearby. They clearly felt validated that a border security agent had told them this. Um, I thought that the culture of fear was exposed uh, a little bit in our conversation. They admitted fearing the worst and getting ready to grab their guns at one point while doing this recreational nature stuff. A man in a car pulled nearby them and they presumed to be Mexican. He parked not too far from where they, where they were fishing and opened his trunk. They told me they were in suspense and ready to grab their weapons until they saw that he had simply grabbed a fishing rod. Still, this experience didn't seem to change their position. The last thing is they expressed resentment of people who didn't know what it was like to live near the border, in their words, telling them what to do with their guns, even though they themselves had never been in an altercation where they had to use their weapons. I can only assume they've heard enough stories from conservative media and the like-minded people around them to feel validated in their position that they might, uh, in fact, need to use them because this is the reality they live in. So. All that being said, um, my reaction is that in our country, there's a regional cultural minority that feels validated in owning militaristic firearms and, and just sees them as a line of self-defense that isn't excessive but could be necessary. I think they only become further entrenched in their positions when gun control is suggested in our national debates. I really don't see this changing because I don't see the culture or information they consume about this changing. So I know that's not exactly heartening, but I just thought I'd share that experience. I'm not sure if it illuminates anything, but I will say that I was struck by how kind and warm-hearted these people were. And I thought to myself, had they been living in any other state, I don't think they'd own these firearms. I really think there's a regional cultural thing happening. I don't want to go over my time, so let me just stop there. I hope that this was interesting to listen to. Thanks, guys, for all you do. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And you know, as long as we're in the mood to talk about uh, high school students and uh, you know how they're acting these days, and, and people are sort of reminiscing about how they used to act and think when they were in high school and, and are comparing these kids very favorably to, uh, to to the sort of, you know, apolitical slackers we all used to be. I'll take this time to uh, to tell you a little story about when I was in high school, because, you know, when else am I going to have this opportunity? I, I had this very specific memory from my high school years. I, you know, I, I could actually look up when this happened and, and, and pinpoint when it was, but pretty sure I was in high school. And I, I was pretty apolitical. I, I just, you know, I knew about politics. My, my first memory 
of any kind of, of politics is uh, Bill Clinton's first election. And I remember my parents being happy about that. And I just had like the vague sense that Democrats were like probably good, but didn't know why. Uh, and, you know, get, through high school, uh, you know, I, I was getting into the tail end of the Clinton years. And, you know, if you recall, they seemed like pretty uneventful years. Like, you know, we, we bombed a few countries, but uh, by American standards, it was a pretty quiet time. And so things just like seemed to be going pretty well and the economy was doing whatever it was doing. And I just thought like, oh, you know, this seems seems OK. Like, I guess I guess they got this on lockdown and, and uh, the country's run on autopilot now. So that's cool. And so now to, to this memory I have from high school, I remember hearing the news that Bill Clinton had renominated Alan Greenspan to continue running the Federal Reserve Bank for his second term. And, and as part of that news, they explained that the terms are 10 years for that seat. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm not messing this. I, I'm, this is all from memory. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure that that's all right. And so I thought like, okay, you know, I don't know anything about Alan Greenspan. I've never heard that name before in my life, but like Clinton seems like he's doing all right. He's probably going to make the right decision. And what I thought was, you know, I, I knew enough to know that, okay, so like he was clearly nominated, Alan Greenspan was, by a Republican originally. And so if Clinton is renominating him, then like, I guess that's good because he must have done an okay job over the last 10 years. And there's like bipartisan consensus on that. And keeping in mind, like I'm in, I'm in high school, right? So I probably just read The Grapes of Wrath or something and had learned about the Great Depression. And, and so I, I, you know, I, I don't know if we discussed this explicitly or if I just had this thought spontaneously that I was like, all right, you know, we haven't had a Great Depression in a long time. So I presume we learned a lot of really good lessons from that experience, probably implemented a bunch of policies and regulations so that that won't happen again. And like, I don't even know if I would have called them regulations. It's just, I thought we figured out how to not self-inflict such an incredibly painful wound on ourselves anymore because look, we, you know, we gone for like 70 years and, and not had, uh, you know, another great depression. And my assumption was that we'd learn the lessons, we'd put the policies in place, uh, you know, what I would later learn, like the Glass-Steagall Act and things like that. And and I took the renomination of Alan Greenspan by Bill Clinton as a sign that we'd all agreed on this stuff, you know, that that a Republican put this guy in charge and a Democrat agreed he should stay on and things had been going okay, so... I guess I guess we're all agreed that we're not going to screw ourselves over and, and we have like pretty just like middle of the road normal policies there that are going to keep us going, uh, you know, for, for a good long time. Little did I know, of course, that Alan Greenspan, maybe more than anyone else, is responsible for the uh, the dismantling of the regulatory state and the idea that uh, the libertarian ideals of uh, the free market should reign. And 
And, you know, the, it was during the Clinton years that all this deregulation really started to happen. And, and all the policies we had put in place and all the lessons we had learned from the Great Depression began to unravel right at that time as I was presuming to myself that uh, that these little snippets of news stories I was hearing were indications of the solid foundation we were on rather than the uh, the crumbling of that foundation. So I don't I, I don't know what the the moral to that story is other than you know as people compare themselves and, and think like wow the, these high school students these days like they're so woke right they're they're so informed um they are the the activism the politics that's going on right now is resonating with younger kids in in such a way that you know what the politics of the Clinton era was not resonating with high school students to the point that I really had any idea what was going on. But these days, like kids are writing essays about uh, about the need for gun regulation because they see this stuff happening all the time. Like, you know, I, I was in high school when Columbine happened, but it, I guess it still seemed like an anomaly. It, it's uh, you know, it's taken twenty years to. Um, for that to uh, become such a pattern that we are starting to recognize we need to do something about it. Uh, no, I mean, plenty of people recognize it a long time ago, but you get my point. And then secondly today, let's just uh, quickly respond to the last two voicemails we heard today. And yeah, as long as we're still in the mood, let's uh, let's give you some homework. This is your uh, your critical thinking essay question. So let's compare and contrast the fear felt by white conservatives near the U.S. southern border who uh, feel they need to have giant guns with them all the time, and the fear felt by Israeli Jews. As I said, compare and contrast. No one's trying to imply that they're exactly the same. There are plenty of ways to contrast those two. But let's also compare uh, You know what what's similar about these fears uh, these people are experiencing, what policies stem from these fears, and why. Don't forget to explain your answer. Uh, responses do not have to be in MLA format. You can simply call and leave your responses at 202-999-3991. Uh, grades will be pass-fail. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.